Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 2nd, 2018. This is episode 2,159 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That makes it a listener council, I'm sorry, an expert council Q&A show. This is where you have questions for expert council members. Uh, I do have a segment at the end today. I'm going to try to get through that for you with uh, lots of pausing. Uh, my bridging between the segments will be incredibly short today, relying on the council members, because right now... They're laying flagstone outside of my window, and they have a great big angle grinder, and they uh, are scoring marks in the flagstone to cut it to lay down for my new outdoor kitchen. It sounds something like, but a lot louder. So uh, I'm sitting here with my finger on the pause button the entire time as it starts up. I'll pause, wait for it to stop, and try to get through this show. That's part of why I gave you guys the... Uh, a rewind tomorrow. Now, coming up next week, I'm not sure on Monday. I might have a regular show Monday. I might not. I don't know yet. It depends on how prepared I feel by the end of this weekend for Liberty Forum. Um, Tuesday, we will have a show for you. It will be Stephen Harris uh, and I continuing the Bug Out Trailer Series. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday will be rewinds next week because, of course, I will be in New Hampshire uh, speaking at Liberty Forum, doing four different presentations. I really hope to see a lot of you there. There's still time. I think there's a few tickets left. I'm not sure, uh, but there is a discount code available to MS or to everybody in the Survival Podcast audience, and uh, you can get that in today's show notes as well. But, I mean, I might as well tell you what it is. Um, well, gee, I, it looks like I erased it out of the notes. Hold on. I mean, I should remember it anyway. The, the code is TSP10, 10% of all tickets at Liberty Forum. So come on up there and hang out with some of the coolest people you'll ever meet. Um, so anyway, just wanted to kind of prep you for what you got going on next week. While they're taking a break, it looks like, let me tell you a little funny Jack story yesterday. I've been having a rough week. Nothing terrible, but just constant little things. That just keeps setting me back. I was supposed to get a bunch of stuff done this week before I left next week, uh, like out in the greenhouse and stuff like that, and I keep having to fix stuff that breaks or have things go wrong. So last night I decided I'm going to get one of the wicking beds I've reconfigured topped off with a bag of this really great organic potting soil that I found at Lowe's. I've been using it for a while. It's called Eco Scraps. So my farmhand Cody had set, set a bag of it that was in the trailer on the, uh, on the tractor that he's using for doing some other work on the ground. Been there for about a week. I picked it up, threw it over my shoulder, and walked, you know, a good 40 feet toward the end of the aviary, inside the aviary, and uh, set the bag up on top of the wicking bed. It immediately felt like something was, like, tingling on the back of my head. And I figured it was, like, some of the wires and stuff that I have hanging from the aviary for training vines up and all. And then I started feeling little shots of pain, and the, 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 the harsh reality set in. The bag was full of freaking fire ants. And I just carried it across my right shoulder and draped across my head. I had fire ants in my hair, in my beard, down my back, in my chest hair. And there's the uh, grinder. It's just been that dadgone type of week. <laughs> and that's the little one. There's a, that's the little one. When I, I had to come, I ran back up to the house, took my clothes off, jumped in the shower. I dug like nine of those little fiery bastards out of my head that I had, and I'd already done my best to get them off of me uh, in the shower. And uh, I felt like a dog with fleas. Got a whole new appreciation for what that must be like. Anyway, that's uh, that that that's my week in a nutshell. Just add like ten more things like that. But you know what? 
it's still been a damn good week. We're making progress on the outdoor kitchen. Um, I've got good stuff coming up. And we had a crypto crash. That means it's a good buying opportunity. Those of you guys that have been considered getting into Bitcoin, like, it's too high. I missed the opportunity. Now would be the time. When you have Bitcoin sitting under nine grand, it's a good time. If you've never bought any cryptocurrency, this is a good time. Open up that Coinbase account and get some cryptocurrency. And you can get... You can get $10 worth of free Bitcoin when you buy 100 at Coinbase. Just go through the banner on my website and you'll, you'll get that. You can just find that Coinbase banner right at the survivalpodcast.com. Little, uh, website update. So the website basically is built on an old theme that didn't play nice with things like Android phones, especially with some of the latest updates. So I installed a mobile theme. It works really well, except some of the buttons that say, like, play and pop-up and stuff don't seem to work for people, and you don't see all the banner ads and things like that. So if you need a banner to get to a sponsor, use your desktop device till I get back, and I'll get this all squared away. I'm going to do some things with that mobile thing to make it work better. But right now, if you want to listen and you're on the mobile device and you're not using one of the apps, if you're using just the plain website, if you click download, it plays. I don't know why that's the one that works and the other ones are not working, but that's the way it works. Um, and on top of this, I'm going to be looking at other... Um, this is basically a plug-in on WordPress that, that has a mobile version of the site. I'm going to be looking at other ones. I just can't do it right now, and it works better than it did. So I've done the best that I can short-term uh, with, uh, with the site on mobile devices. But do remember, if you are on Android or iPhone, we have apps. We have apps available. I'll put a link in the show notes today. They're in, they're in they're on the site anyway, but I'll put them in the show notes today, and you can get the app, and then everything will work flawlessly on iPhone or or iPhone, either one. It'll work just fine for you, um, and so that's your other option if you're on a mobile device. And really, you know, get get the apps. Like if you're on Android or iPhone, get the apps because they they do more than just the site does. But we are working on the site, and I think when I get the site done. Uh, with, uh, with, with whatever, you know, mobile plugin that I find, it's actually going to be in some ways maybe preferable to the app. It's going to be, I have a great plan. I just need time to execute it. And right now, all of my time has to go to Liberty Forum and getting stuff ready around here. Like a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not just general stuff I want done this year in the spring. It's stuff to make sure like that if anything breaks, it's no big deal while I'm gone because, you know, I'm leaving Dorothy here to take care of this crap without me. So anyway. What are we going to talk about today? Because we just had a big bunch of Jack Ramble. But, okay, here's what we got. We got... We have a large mechanical device grinding stone outside the window. No, we have uh, overcoming challenges in getting started homeschooling with Mike and Sue Laprise. We have dealing with handgun permits in New York State and class of permits, specifically with our law enforcement officer, Dan Oman. I should say our retired law enforcement officer, John, Don o Dan Oman. We have the ins and outs of long-term care insurance with John Pugliano. We have a hack for dealing with cold, long winters by Ben Falk. We have the different options for RV living from Gary Collins. We have using and cooking with salt cod with Chef Keith Snow. We have what is a cryptocurrency faucet, and is it a scam from crypto expert Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch? And if I can get five to ten minutes of quiet to be able to actually talk to you, I have a question on mentors and trusting your instinct when approached by somebody that wants to be your mentor, which in of itself I find a little unusual. We'll talk about that today, too. All of that in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. We have one for the year 99 from David Verne at tspwiki.com today, and here we go. The Spanish Emperor. 
Every emperor has come from Rome until Trajan. Trajan was born near modern-day Seville, Spain. It is suspected that his family might have been Italian and settled in Spain during the 200s B.C., but he is still considered a provincial, not Italian. My take by David Verne. Very few people cared about the fact that Trajan wasn't Italian. An important shift was happening in the Roman Empire during this time. All provinces except for Britain had been under Roman control for 100 years or longer. And the people had Romanized, and many of them were Roman citizens. The empire was beginning to move away from the old Roman families holding all the power as more people began to be considered Roman. From Gaul to Syria, people still kept local customs, but they all spoke Latin and used the same currency. In America, before the Civil War, people considered themselves citizens of their state first and the federal government separate. But after the war, Americans began to see themselves as just Americans. There's an interesting little piece there. I mean, if you if you watch um, the Wyatt Earp movie, I can't think of which one. It's not Tombstone. It's the one that was more true to the facts uh, with Kurt Russell. It might have been called Wyatt Earp. It was long, too. It was like three and a half, four hours or some crazy shit. They came out after Tombstone, which was a much more entertaining movie, I will give you. But there's a scene in it where he gets all drunk and he screws up a bunch of shit and steals a horse, which they could hang you for at the time. And uh, I think he does this in Arkansas, and his dad manages to get him out on, like, bail. But then he, like, skips bail, and he says, don't ever come back to Arkansas. Because basically they'll hang. But by, just by leaving Arkansas, no one came looking for him. It's, uh, it doesn't mean that no one would ever come looking for him, but it just gives you an idea of how distinctly separate the states were. And this was even, I think, believe this was after the Civil War. Uh, 1873, in fact. So even after the Civil War, we still had very distinctive... Lines between the states. Now, some of that, first of all, I want to, I want to point out in defense of Mr. Earp, right? Um, somebody will be angry with me that's a, uh, a Western historian if I don't. It, is, it has been made the case that he didn't even do it, that he was drunk and in the wrong place at the wrong time and got blamed for it. But my point re there really is that we have, over time, coalesced into a republic of states that now resembles more a a single nation, where before we were basically, even under the Constitution, far more close to what you would know as the Articles of Confederation from history class than we are in the memory of any living person. And it is really, I'll tell you where it really all started in the United States. It really began about 1897, more than, the, it's, it, that's the bigger divide than the Civil War. Uh, that was with uh, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad versus the city of Chicago. And it was in regards to the 14th Amendment. And we won't go into a big history lesson on that, but what that was was the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court applying the Bill of Rights and other amendments of the Constitution to the states. This is what really shifted things. Because up until this point, You know that Second Amendment we're so proud of? And you say, like, it's a violation of my Second Amendment rights in the state of California that California does blah, 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 blah. Before this, this, before this happened, California could do whatever the hell it wanted with regard to gun control. They just didn't back then. All right? But it was seen as the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and its amendments applied to the federal government And the individual state's constitution applied to the state. And there was a clear separation. And from 1897 through the mid-1900s, what happened with multiple court decisions was full incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's a good thing. Because, you know, 
look at the fact that the Second Amendment does, on some level, still protect rights of gun ownership in certain states. The key is, this was supposed to be a republic of states, and then be laboratories of liberty, and if you wanted massive gun control in your state, fine, see what that does to your state. By incorporating the Bill of Rights, by exceeding its authority, the federal government has amalgamated the differences between the states and, and, and reduced them. And that is thereby reduced republicanism. There's a lot of shit our founders would be uh, pissed about, but nobody seems to get how pissed they would be about this. And what you have to understand is the original states that signed on to the Constitution, if, if that document had applied to them, many of them would not have signed on. Because they wanted their own state-level autonomy. It was designed primarily, in the words of Barack Obama, the Bill of Rights, was a document of negative liberties, stating that which the government could not do. Now, he had a problem with that. I actually liked that idea. So I think people would go crazy if they heard, well, I don't think that the Second Amendment should apply to California. Well, I think if you only do it that way, then we have a problem. But I think if we accept the fact that the way this government was originally established, you'd find that some states would move so far toward liberty and be so successful, and the differences between them would be so apparent. By the way, the graduated income tax that we're still under, even with the new tax bill that gives you money back, is one of the 12 planks of the Communist uh, Manifesto. And that also became a huge thing that reduced the differentiation between the states. This is why I'm actually not even opposed to, like, you know, on the new tax bill? The new tax bill, guys, you know what they say? You can only deduct so much of your property or state income taxes. I don't like paying anybody any taxes, but what the people of like New Jersey and Illinois and California should be saying when they see this thing and it, oh my God, New York, it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase my taxes. You shouldn't be pissed at the federal government for eliminating a deduction. You should be going to your governor and your state legislator and saying, what the hell? Why do I pay $20,000 worth of property tax on a three-bedroom, two-bedroom house, two, two house? See... When you have these federal taxes and federal mandates and federal control, you reduce that republicanism, which is, and it's not the Republican Party, the republicanism that the government was founded under. So that's what this makes me think of. And I know I went long today, but there's a reason for this. Everybody talks about the fall of Rome and the lessons of the fall of Rome. This turning point in Rome, this coming together, is going to lead to amazing prosperity, and the prosperity itself will lead to the fall. The United States coalesced and came together as states and became a true republic, and became stronger, and people started to stop thinking of themselves as being from Georgia or from New Jersey or from Florida or Texas, and thought of themselves more as Americans first, and it led to amazing prosperity. History often rhymes, and guess what comes next in the rhyme? Anyway, just something to keep your eyes on. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the stuff for the expert council today. Remember, you can send me a question for an expert council member really easy. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. Give me your question in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times. Give me details if you have them. More details, the better, as long as you give me the question up front so that we know exactly what you're asking. I'll send it over to the expert council member. They get an answer back. You'll hear it in the future in a show like today. First question, Mike and Sue LaPreeze with a question from a couple who is going to begin their journey in homeschooling this coming school year and wants to know about getting started and overcoming initial challenges. And you'll hear how Mike and Sue turn that into opportunities. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert council. Hi, Jack and TSB community. Today's question comes from JR. 
And JR says, we are starting our first year of homeschooling a 5, 8, and 11-year-old. Can you give us a few tips to make our homeschool time most effective and not turn into a struggle? And JR is living in Pennsylvania. So we start off by looking at struggles, and we try to be really um, positive in the, in the way we looked at things. So we try to look at struggles as opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities can be challenging. Uh, yeah. So challenging opportunities. <laughs> like so, living in Pennsylvania. So that would be the first one in terms of being effective is you pick your state. So we talk in, in TSP about walking to freedom. And sometimes I would say you might want to walk to freedom when you're looking at homeschooling. Pennsylvania can be a tough state. It's one of them. We know some people who moved from Massachusetts to Texas specifically for homeschooling because they were struggling with the, the rules and regulations up there. Uh, but if not... And a lot of times people can't move, whether you own land or your family's there or you've got a great job and you're not interested in moving, you like the climate. Um, so we would say then make the most of where you're at and grow where you're planted. So one of the things is pick a, a, a friendly state for homeschooling, but if you can't, then make the most of where you're at. And start learning your state's rules, which regardless of what state you're in, they all have rules about homeschooling. And then one of the really important things is to learn the vocabulary. It's like you read through those rules and you think you know what it means, but all those words might mean different things in the educational realm. So learn the vocabulary and, and ask, call around, ask questions, talk to friends. And the other really important thing, if you have a state that requires any tracking of any information, don't wait till the end of the year or the day before it's time to hand it in. Keep track from day one. Make your graphs and grids and charts and, you know, fill in all your blanks every single day that you're required to and include your kids in that. And then anything you're going to turn into the state, make a copy. State agencies don't care about losing an entire family's homeschool hand in. And it happens repeatedly. It's crazy. But, um, you know, it's state bureaucrats. So then you're going to want to look up state agency. There's a state agency and then there's a nonprofit agency and the nonprofit agency will probably give you way better information than the state bureaucracy so make sure you check that out and read everything you can get and most important is to find a mentor not somebody else who's starting the first year of homeschooling a mentor who has been homeschooling in your state for a while preferably somebody with kind of a learning style homeschool feel that you're looking for. Okay, so to be most effective, JR, the success starts with you. It's all about the parent's attitude and commitment, and that's husband and wife. Yeah, so dropping the struggle from your vocabulary and starting to call things opportunity. So when somebody in your family is like, oh, this is so hard, it's like, oh, what a great opportunity. Yeah, how do we make it work, and yeah. how do we overcome that? Um, and it's important. Um, so Sue is the, the teacher, and I'm the principal. Principally. Principally. Yeah. I'm the principal. Yeah. Um, but one of the things is, so Sue's dealing with the daily opportunities, the, the, the daily problems to overcome. And sometimes that can be overwhelming. And there are times when I come home at night that she needs me just to be a sounding board to talk about the struggles of the day. So one of the things to help make it successful is to be there to listen for your wife, to listen to the things that she's struggling with, and then to give her input when she's looking for input. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that, but because um, I, when I when we were younger, which we were a long time ago, um, 
I would be having these struggles and a friend would say, well, what did Michael think? And it's like, you know, who cares what Michael thinks? He's at work all day. You know, sometimes he was working two jobs and I'm struggling here at home alone with the children and, you know, changing two sets of diapers and all that. And she said, so what did Michael say? And so I'd ask him and he would have the best answer. And I'd go back to her and it's like, how does he know the answer to this? He's not even there. And she's like, because he is there, you know, he's the father, he's participating, he's providing, he's doing all these things and we're a couple. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's important. Yep, it is. And so it's, it's important for, uh, to remember your commitment and to remember to have a good attitude. Right. A lot of your success is going to depend upon how your mind thinks. So if you want to be most effective, think success and think of the, uh, the, and I'm going to use the word struggle just to say, think of the word struggles as opportunities, opportunities that present themselves that you get to overcome them. And so one of the things you hear a lot when people say, oh, I can't homeschool because I would be lazy or inconsistent. And, I, you know, quite frankly, that's how most homeschoolers start because they're so exhausted and they just want to get away from school. And it starts out. It looks a little lazy and inconsistent, but at some point, parents who continue homeschooling go, oh, this is all on us. We're responsible for reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so it's that one decision you make to homeschool, and it's another decision you make to say, I am all in for my children in a happy and cheerful way. So being effective, and I'm going to sound like a broken record. I talk about family meetings. So we do family meetings, and we've been doing this now for 26 years. Yeah. Uh, we do family meetings uh, as frequently as we've had some sometimes daily meetings. Uh, we'll do family meetings when we're planning a camping trip or whatever, but we'll do family meetings. I usually have them scheduled at least twice a month, so every two weeks we'll do a family meeting, and that includes the kids. It's not just Sue and I having a meeting. It's the kids, and we get their input. And it's not always about, okay, so what are we struggling with that we need to improve kind of family meetings? A lot of times it's, so what are we doing right? We'll ask what the did kids, you do this week that was super fun? Yeah, what did you really enjoy about the last couple of weeks of school? Is there something in particular that you really liked? And let's talk about that. Yeah, because feedback from your children is what's going to help you have a better homeschool. Yes, because then you can address it because what one child likes and what another child likes can be totally different things. Yeah, and so as the parent, that the d developmental stages that your kids go through, you've got to learn all those. Then you've got all the personality things, and you've got learning styles that um, you can go online and Google all these things. But sometimes you're like Googling, you don't have the right word for that developmental stage or that learning style. And so that's where having friends around who are going through the same things and are homeschooling and investing in their kids, then you come across really cool things like um, Temple Grandin is a great example of a severely autistic woman who grows up to be an amazing, amazing person. And her movie, Temple Grandin's movie, is fabulous. It's worth watching whether you're homeschooling or not. Yeah, that's Temple, T-E-M-P-L-E, Grandin, G-R-A-N-D-I-N. It's fantastic. She became a scientist. It's a great yeah, movie. Yeah. It's a true story. It's, she's, a, she's a real person. You can look her up. And so the other thing to make your homeschool effective is to inspect what you expect. I expect my children to do math every day. 
but if I don't have a checklist at the end of the week, if we get busy and we go to the zoo and we go to co-op and we went to Ikea today, then I'm not knowing how far did they get in math this week? Do we get enough math done? So we have a lot of spreadsheets that we do in Google Docs that my children know how to use. They input their information themselves, a lot of it, like our chore list. And um, so they're learning how to use spreadsheets and they're learning how to check their work. And then I don't have to hear anybody say, can I watch TV? Can I watch TV? Can I watch TV? Can so-and-so come over and play? I can say, hey, show me your checklist. So and the other thing that's super important as a parent of any sort is to not major on the minors. If your four-year-old spills milk, it's because they're four. If there's nothing to get upset about, it's going to just need cleaned up and move on. And so you can get caught up and start getting upset about those daily normal things that kids do, and then you're going to have a struggle. Yeah, and majoring on the minors uh, is different from child to child. Yeah, um, if you have a child that struggles with reading um, and it, it's just a matter of their age hasn't caught up to ability, their ability, um, that that's, can be, that's a minor. Uh, we've had more than one child that didn't start reading until the age of 10. And, and it's okay. Yeah. There's, um, there are children in school, 16-year-olds in eighth grade in, a, in school who can't read. It's okay if your 10-year-old is not a really good reader. Yeah, no, if, if it continues, then you might want to go get some assistance and yeah. maybe there's, maybe there's a medical reason. But those are some of the things that as they're first starting out, don't major on the minors. Um, so to be really fun though, to get past struggle and all the things that happen in your homeschool that are hard and there are hard days and weeks. But the really important thing is developing that community where you're having adventures with people. And joining with people, you want to not just have support for your children, but you want support for you, the parents, not just mom. You know, it's easy to go to the park and do park days or the zoo, and then the kids are playing, and you're having lunch, and the moms are chatting, and just supporting one another through friendship and offering suggestions. You know, we're still learning. I mean, when I was first homeschooling, Dana Martin of the Sparkling Martins wasn't around. And I just discovered her last year. She's the radical unschooling um, homeschool mom. And she's fantastic and fun to listen to. And it's it's not what I do, but it gives me lots of ideas. And so there's mentors of all different levels, but those personal people are really important. Yes. Yeah, so um, to make your, your life effective and your homeschool effective, you need to care for you. And so that care for you is making sure you have friends. And homeschool friends are great because you can bounce ideas off one another. And if you're struggling, especially somebody who's been doing it longer than you can tell you how to deal with those struggles. So it's a good support group. It's great to have mentors. Uh, it's great to make sure that you have downtime. Some time when you're not just pushing, 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 where you just have time, where you're just taking it easy. Enjoying. Enjoying. Yeah, playing yeah. games. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that you can design the life you'd love to live by turning struggles into opportunities. Great stuff as always. Now I have a really tricky one for our former law enforcement officer, Dan Oman, who is now uh, enjoying his life more by raising grass-fed beef, on um, 
carrying with an out-of-class, as they would call it, permit in New York, and you'll hear some of New York's lunacy in this as well. Um, this is a touchy one, and I would be using a lot of caution if I were going to go there. Dan, take it away. Hi, folks. This is Dan Oman answering questions on law enforcement matters. I have a sticky one here today from Tom in New York. Tom wants to know, what are your thoughts about carrying a gun out of class in New York, and should I inform if I do so? The details. In Tom's County, where he resides in New York, there are essentially two main carry permit classifications for citizens. One is a sportsman's carry, which is for going target shooting or going hunting. So that permit would allow you to travel to and from a shooting range or to and from hunting. The other permit is unrestricted carry. Tom writes in the details that most permit holders that he has talked to carry all the time, regardless of their permit status. Tom writes, the claim they make, and I have confirmed again with some local law enforcement officers, is that these are administrative restrictions placed on the licenses from police commissioners and not by the state, and as such, violating them will only result in the loss of my permit and not criminal charges. Tom says, I can confirm firsthand that I have been with a friend who carries 24-7 and during a traffic stop will always inform and usually they check his license and let him go. But the gun laws are different based on what law enforcement officer you encounter. As I was reading Tom's details, I was thinking, you just need to move. Get out of New York. But then Tom noted at the bottom of his email that he hates New York. So Tom gets it. There's probably some compelling reason why he can't leave. My second thought was, just get an unrestricted license so you can avoid any of these issues. I was thinking, well, maybe they just cost more or something like that. But I looked it up, and the details on the unrestricted license basically prohibit anyone from getting a license unless there are some weird circumstances. So here's what it says. You must show additional proper clause and additional proper causes in quotes to qualify for this endorsement. Additional proper cause is determined by a review of all relevant information bearing on your claimed need. You must show that you're exposed to extraordinary personal danger documented by proof of recurrent threats to life or safety. The mere fact that you reside in a high-crime area does not establish proper cause for the issuance of this endorsement. So basically, you need to file a police report with evidence showing that you're a victim of either stalking or death threats, something like that, in order to get this permit. So basically, Tom is not able to get an unrestricted permit. So what Tom is really asking here is, what are my thoughts on carrying a gun all the time with only a sportsman permit. So if you are armed and have a sportsman permit, the only way you'll have a potential for legal trouble is if you have an encounter with law enforcement, the law enforcement officer knows you have a gun, and they know you aren't going to or coming from a shooting range or going hunting. So let's look at how a police officer might know you have a gun. One, it's in plain view, so it's on your passenger seat or something like that. Two, if it's concealed, but it's creating a bulge under your clothing and your waistband wherever it's concealed. Three, you have to use the gun in self-defense, in which case, who cares if you get in trouble, you just saved your life or someone else's. Four, you're in a collision in which you're injured, you have to go to the hospital via ambulance, and the police are conducting an inventory on your abandoned vehicle prior to having it towed. During the inventory process, which is basically a search of your vehicle, the officer finds the gun. 
five, your gun gets stolen out of your car and you need to report it. Or six, you disclose the possession of the gun. So the most likely of all these scenarios that the officer will find out is by you disclosing it. Surprisingly, New York is not a state that has a duty to inform law, but there is a provision that states that you do need to disclose if asked by an officer. Technically, that is in conflict with the Fifth Amendment, but I digress. Normally, I'd suggest you just opt not to answer that question, but it looks like in New York that would get you in hot water for not answering. And I believe New York has their carry permits linked with the driver's license or license plate data, so the officer will know that you have a permit whether you tell them or not once they run your information through their computer. And at that point, it would likely prompt the officer to ask if you are carrying. So if you do get pulled over in a traffic stop, we'll just assume that the officer will know that you have a firearm if you do have a sportsman permit. But now the officer has the burden of proof to show you weren't on your way to or coming from a shooting range. Unless, of course, there is some provision in the permit that requires you to prove you went to or are going to a range. I just don't know how you are supposed to prove that you are going to a range or how an officer could prove you weren't going to a range unless you just tell them you weren't. It just seems like there's a low likelihood here that you would run into trouble with this, and it sounds like the consequence is also minimal. It is seemingly a low-risk situation, but you, of course, have to assess your own risk tolerance here and make your decision. If you're anxious about it and it's causing you stress and you just are nervous and don't know what to do, then just don't carry outside the limits of the permit. It's not worth all the anxiety that it might be causing you. So it might be worth it to either speak with an attorney, pay, just pay the consultation fee and get some clarification about it, or call the issuing department, which is, I'm assuming, the sheriff's department in your county, and speak with a supervisor to get clarification on whether it's a criminal offense or an administrative offense. I think that is a critical component to your decision-making process here. And I know firsthand that New York just does not mess around with these gun laws. I was in New York City several years back uh, attending my grandmother's funeral. I was in law enforcement at still at the time, and I had my firearm with me. I declared to the airline leaving Hartsfield International that I had a firearm and I had to go through the TSA search process and all that, which is kind of a hassle. But I legally left Atlanta traveling through the airport and got to New York. I carried all throughout the time I was there. And then when I got to LaGuardia to go back home to Atlanta, I once again declared my firearm to the agent at the airline. And they handed me some funny paperwork and asked me to start filling out this paperwork. And I looked at it, and it was asking for my name and all kinds of additional information that I, I just thought was kind of strange. It was out of the ordinary from other places where I had traveled and declared the firearm. And then the, the agent got on the phone and started speaking very quietly while I was trying to fill out the paperwork. And then just a couple minutes later, two Port Authority police officers were approaching behind me. They asked me if I had a firearm. I said yes. They asked me why, and I showed them my badge. They literally sighed in relief, the two officers. They said, oh, thank goodness. They were so relieved to not have to arrest me and have to do additional paperwork and all the nonsense they have to go through arresting someone at the airport with a firearm. Even though I was the police, it was just kind of an unnerving experience, so... I've only gotten back to New York City once since then, and I didn't carry that time, even though I was still in law enforcement then. 
not having policed in that environment or really understanding the mentality of the police officers that are enforcing these laws, I'm probably not much help here with this answer, Tom, so I apologize. But again, I would just try and talk with an attorney about it or get some clarification, again, from the sheriff's department. I think Dan did a pretty good job with that, honestly, because it's one I wouldn't even have answered. I would have just emailed back if it was for me and said, I'm not doing this. Talk to a lawyer. I'm done. I don't want to be involved. Um, I think this is one of those things where you're depending on the kindness of the officer that you interact with. Uh, though I do think there are points where we do look at it and say, like, if I have a gun on me and I am caught for some reason with it, this is the consequences. But maybe I'm in a situation where I think I'm in actual danger. And if I'm in danger and I don't have my gun, then this is the consequences, and we weigh those consequences. But, man, don't ask me to tell you when and where. Uh, next up, I have a question for John Pugliano on something that I think is on the minds of many people as they get older, a long-term care insurance and, and self-insurance versus actual insurance. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today our financial question comes from Dean, and Dean's question is about long-term care insurance. Now, Dean is wondering if it makes sense for him to purchase a long-term care policy for him and his wife or whether he should take the money and invest the amount that he would spend on premiums and use those capital gains in the future to basically act as a means of self-insurance. Dean goes on to provide some other specific information about him. I won't get into all his particulars, but he's in his early 50s. He's a really good job with the federal government. He has military retirement on top of that. So he's doing very well for himself. He's healthy. He has basically a good uh, genes and family history where he's probably going to live well into his you know, 70s or 80s. And so he has that nagging question like many people that are over 50 or 60 do, and that's how are they going to take care of long-term health care? Well, Dean, your question is definitely a good one, but it is an extremely complicated question. And it isn't even one of those ones where you can just say it depends. I don't think there's any easy solution to long-term health care given the huge amount of uncertainties that we're all currently living through right now. And the uncertainties I speak of are across the board. I'm talking about the long-term stability of the insurance company. I'm talking about how future governmental policies and things like Medicare are changing and are likely to change even more over the next 20 years. The very nature of health care itself, how it's being shaped not only by economic demands and the burdens of the aging baby boomers, but also of technology coming in and the massive disruption that we're going to see with that. And then there's the whole question of longevity and what type of medical advances are going to extend our lives. And along with that longevity, what will the actual quality of life be? So there's a lot to consider here and certainly more than I'll be able to address in, in the few minutes I have to answer your question. I will say this, Dean, you're asking the right questions. And you are also part of the upper income wage earners that can afford long-term health care. I mean, the bottom line here is that most people don't ask this question because they can't afford it. Now, you didn't specifically say what prices you've been quoted, but I would say on average for someone in the early 50s that's healthy, you're probably looking at approximately $3,000. So with you and your wife, you're looking at $6,000 a year. That's not going to break the bank for you, but it's certainly well above what most people in the middle class can afford to pay. In your particular situation, I would encourage you to do one of two things. Number one, really do your homework and sit down with a spreadsheet and go through your different policy options with a fine-tooth comb, really digging in, understanding the terms, and exactly what is covered and what is not covered. 
And that's kind of the do-it-yourself method. I Again, for someone in your income level, I would encourage you to maybe even go out and hire a professional, like a financial advisor or some type of CPA that specializes in counseling people specifically about insurance needs and not someone that is commissioned to sell insurance. You don't want to be talking to a salesman. You want to talk to a fee-only accountant or financial professional that doesn't have any skin in the game to sway your opinion one way or the other, and to help you navigate through this very convoluted process. And I say that because long-term care insurance is not something straightforward like you know term life insurance or homeowner's insurance is. There are a lot of levels of complexity built into the pricing of these products because of the critical nature of coverage that can occur over someone's life you know, 20 years into the future. And I'll just touch on a couple of the the complexities of these contracts. These policies are not going to cover you indefinitely forever. They're going to cap how much is paid on, say, a daily, a monthly, or a yearly basis. And they're going to cap how many years of coverage you're actually going to receive. So in most cases, that's only a three-year period. And in terms of a daily benefit, a lot of the policies I've seen are only around $150. Now, you think about what kind of hotel you can get for $150. It kind of gives you an idea that you're not going to get a whole lot of medical coverage in terms of assisted living for $150. But that's what a lot of these policies cover because that's what people can afford. The more the insurance company is promising to pay and the longer they're promising to pay for it, that means a higher premium for you. And just because you have long-term care coverage, it doesn't mean that you're going to immediately qualify for it when you hit a certain age. You know, there are eligibility requirements. You may have to have a certain degree of disability or unable to perform a certain number of tasks. And before the benefits can kick in, there's generally some type of a waiting period, or they call it an elimination period, where you may have to pick up the expense of your own disability for maybe the first 30 days or maybe even it's the first year. Again, it all depends on how your specific policy is written and the more riders that are put in there to provide additional coverage, it's going to cost you a higher premium. You also have to consider things like inflation. There has to be some type of an inflation rider on your policy because that $150 today in coverage is not going to buy you anything 20 or 25 years into the future. So you have to ask yourself, well, can I afford to put in a 2% inflation escalator or you know, can you afford a 5 or a 7% inflation escalator? All of those things are going to add to the premium. And again, that's why someone in your particular situation, I would really highly encourage you, if you're thinking of going this route, pay the money and hire a professional to sit down and work through these very unique and special questions as they apply to you. Now, Dean, having said all that, I'll tell you, as far as my own personal situation, I don't have long-term care insurance. I believe in being prudent, and I believe in insuring against unforeseen events like car insurance and homeowner's insurance, term life insurance, having medical insurance, things of that nature. But I also realize that I can't insure my life against everything. You know, for example, on my home, I don't have flood insurance and I don't have earthquake insurance. And the reason is, is that the premiums, I think, are much higher than the risk of those devastating events occurring to my home. Now, I live on the side of a hill in Utah, so I'm probably not going to get flooded, although it could occur with you know, small reservoirs and irrigation canals and things we have. But you know, for the most part, I live on a hill in the desert, so I'm probably not going to get flooded. So that's probably a wise decision. 
but I do live in an area where earthquakes are not likely, but they are probable. Why don't I insure my home against an earthquake? The premiums are really expensive. I could afford them, but does it make sense given the risk to spend that money to insure against an event that may never happen? In my particular case, I've chosen to play the odds and not be insured for earthquake insurance. And in a similar fashion, I don't have long-term care insurance. And my biggest reason for not having long-term care insurance has less to do with the high premiums than it does with the uncertainties that I talked about at the beginning of answering this question. Things like, where is government policy going to go? How stable are these insurance companies going to be to have payoffs in the future? How much can I guarantee that my premiums aren't going to rise exponentially? And I say that because if you look over the last 10 years, that's what has happened with long-term care insurance with 50% premium increases you know, not being unusual. More so than anything, I would really say that the stability of these insurance companies really worry me. In fact, just this week, we see that General Electric is taking something in the order of a $15 billion hit to their bottom line because of old insurance underwriting that was part of the former GE Capital that are still on GE Corporate's books. That $15 billion loss that they're trying to work through is essentially from long-term policies that was written back in the 1980s. You can imagine how that would impact a much smaller insurance company or smaller underwriter that doesn't have the broad diversification and you know, market capitalization that a General Electric does. And so I think going into the future, as we look at areas of financial crisis and instability within the system, it's not going to be in things like the banking systems where many people are concerned with. I think it's going to hit the insurance companies and the pension funds. Ah, but that's a topic for another day. Here's the bottom line, Dean. I think you need to talk to a professional. And then what you and all of us need to do is not only work to prepare ourselves financially to save as much as we can and live prudently and build up a nice reserve of money that will carry us into our old age, but we also need to be thinking about taking care of our health, getting proper exercise, having healthy lifestyles, and probably more important than anything, be building those family and social type relationships so that when we become senior citizens, we have a strong social fabric where we have friends and family around us that are helping us along as we slow down. Because the bottom line for most of us, Dean, is that we're going to be 70 or 80 or 90 years old. We're going to be afflicted by chronic illnesses. It's going to be a long, slow burn as we degrade in our health and in our physical abilities. And when it comes to the final end of life, most people pass away within six months to two years of being struck with that final illness. Probably less than 15% of seniors actually need to go into long-term care beyond 24 months. Well, Dean, thanks for your question. I'm sure Jack will chime in with some relevant information because he's recently gone through end-of-life issues with his father-in-law. This is a topic that's complicated. It's going to affect all of us one way or the other, and it's an appropriate survival topic that we should be planning contingencies for. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I'm just going to throw a little add-on to this. I do not have long-term care insurance, and I, and I, I go back and forth with, with the need. And, you know, we do pretty well for ourselves now. But I have a, uh, a, a, a friend of the family, I guess you put it, a, a family that is friends with our family, that uh, is basically a lady that my father-in-law dated after he lost his wife for a, a number of years, and we still stay very much in touch with their family. 
and she is in a care for a long term, you know, basically um, medical and memory care facility, and she's she's looked out after pretty well, um, and the family does okay, and they were okay, but you know she had lost her husband maybe a few years before my father in law lost his wife, and that's probably why they you know got on together so well. But she's lived way longer than anybody would have ever expected, given some of her health issues. She's dealt with breast cancer, stage four, and recovered uh, Parkinson's disease. And now she has basically Alzheimer's uh, and then all of the things that go along with being her age. If she had not had long care, health insur- long care insurance, she would probably be in whatever level of nursing home that Medicaid could provide at this point. Because she's at a point where you just, there's a point at certain times where now that we can extend life the way we do, uh, you, you, you just can't. As, as, as a person trying to hold a job, take care of an elder person completely on your own anymore. And uh, that's probably, you know, with the limited ability that they would have financially to do something for her, by now, they probably would have paid for a while. But by now, she'd probably be in a far less uh, caring facility. Um, it's just the facts of life. So it is something to truly consider as you think about going into, you know, from going from your golden years to, the after golden years where it's it's really end of life it's it, it's worth considering I, ju- I just had to throw that in there next i have a uh, just basically a hack this wasn't really a question this is a hack to uh, deal with long cold winters in your home hey jack and all ben falk with whole systems design just a little quick kind of riff on a topic that i've been thinking about lately cuz jack asked um to have a little different take on on some input from the expert council and, you know, in the winter here in Vermont, long winter, um, oftentimes it won't even be sunny on the coldest days. You know, usually that's a saving grace. It's like really sunny on the coldest days, but not so much anymore, it seems. I mean, we've had plenty of like days that didn't get to zero Fahrenheit, got down to 20 Fahrenheit below at night. Uh, and the clouds, you know, clear at night or won't get that cold. It's got to be clear to be 20 below, 23, 24 below. And then the clouds roll in at dawn, and it's like cloudy and, you know, two below, five below, blowing 20, 30 miles an hour, you know, like 30 below with wind chill or, or colder. And anyway, you know, a lot of – we have a new kind of apartment home, and we have a one we've renovated a bit. And you can make a really cozy, warm, high-performance home for like 20% more uh, building cost or less – Twice as well insulated, three times as well insulated, way better performing for you know ten twenty percent more construction cost pays off in spades in a short amount of time, never mind the comfort uh, and less work of like heating it you know loading wood in or whatever um, but um renovating is a real pain in the butt you, there's only so much you can do to make uh, existing housing stock which just suck in this country um they're terrible. You cannot find a, a good house really on the market. If you're in a cold climate and you need a high performance, decently performing house, you can't find it. Um, so renovating is difficult. You can't just reinsulate a house. I mean, you can, but it's a fortune. And the lowest hanging fruit I've found by far is just closing off parts of your home. I know it may sound really simple, but it is so effective. And it's an old trick. I mean, you know, this isn't anything new. But people don't think about it enough, Um, not just closing rooms, but closing off stairways and vertical floors. If you have a a two- or three-story house, your biggest headway can be made by 
compartmentalizing the verticality of the space. Closing off side rooms is nice and definitely do it. Put like sweeps on the bottoms of doors on all your doors and have doors between as many rooms as possible. Most of us really only need a very small amount of square feet to live in. I mean, when you really get down to it, my wife and I spend 90% of our time in like a few hundred square feet. It's like the kitchen, set up a laptop on the kitchen table in the winter because it's by the wood stove. And we live in a very small part of an already small house, like 1,800 square foot house. So um, closing spaces up that you don't need or need as much, insulating you know, below the doors, having sealed doors, but then really closing off the verticality. So we had a we have a two and a half story house, and I close. It was open from like the loft in the third floor to the bottom floor. You could see down three floors. Such low hanging fruit. We closed off the top. You know, made like a hatch into the loft and framed that off, insulated it with just a little bit of foam board. You don't need high insulation. Just ceiling. It does the most of it. And uh, then closed off the bottom stairwell and put a sweep on the bottom of that door. Um, again, mostly just air sealing. You don't need high R value because vertical spaces want a thermosiphon. You know, they want a convection loop and, and, you know, energy wants to move from hot to cold, especially in the vertical realm, um, convection loops. So closing off space like that, you gain a lot of, of value um, and then closing off in the horizontal, room to room. Good stuff from Ben. Easy, simple things that uh, make a big difference in your uh, your heating bill, if nothing else. Anyway, next up I have a, a, a piece from Gary Collins on the different types of RVs and making a decision between them either as something that you would travel with or live in. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss all things health and wellness, living off the grid, living remotely, uh, you know, just simple living and good life. Now, before we get started, I wanted to ask some people. I'm looking for guest bloggers. So any of you guys familiar and gals familiar with what I do on my website, my books, and my blogs, everything I've ever done and talk about on the show and all my question answers and all that good stuff. If you have something you want to submit, you can hit me up at contact at Primal Power Method. I really appreciate it. And I want to say a quick gripe. I recorded this beautiful answer for Jack. And, of course, GarageBand decided, eh, it just wasn't going to do it. I didn't find out until I did the whole thing. So I will be redoing this. But with my new book coming out, and you guys are going to like it, there's a whole bunch of new neat stuff going on this year that I'm going to be doing. Um, new website, new book series. So I'm really excited about it. But I get a lot of, I've gotten a lot of questions recently about mobile living, and that's what my next book's going to be about. Uh, it's called The Simple Life, Teeny Home, and Mobile Living Revolution is the loose title right now. It's in editing, so I hope to be getting this out to you guys before summer. It should be. Um, cover design, everything's getting there, so hopefully. But I get a lot of questions on where to start and what are the differences between all the RVs. And RV stands for recreational vehicle. So there's five major classes. That There's a couple more, but five major ones that most people will be familiar with. Class A, Class B, Class C, a tow-behind travel trailer, and a fifth wheel. So I'll go over all these real quickly and give you the pros and cons of each one. Now, Class A is the big daddy. Think of a tour bus. 
that's what that is. I mean, the ones today, I couldn't even tell you how ridiculous they are. Um, it, it, they are undoubtedly nicer than 95% of the homes in America. I mean, the insides are just, I mean, it's like living in luxury. So a Class A, when you think of that, it's, it's, it's self-contained, so you have everything. It's got it's, it's got a generator already installed in it. These are the new ones. Um, I think even the old ones. I can even how far I can think back, but anyone that you will run into in the last at least 15 years, I'm guessing, would have a generator included. So they're usually 30 to 40 feet long. Cost. I mean, some of them go over for over a million dollars, but the average is between a hundred and five hundred thousand. I know that's a huge gap, but it just depends. You dream it, they make it. I mean, in the RV world today, there's something for everyone. Uh, the pros of a Class A are they have everything you need. Lots of storage. Big floor plans with sliders for additional room sliders and pop-outs are sections that actually slide out to give you more space when you're parked and, and staying in it, and then they contract back in when you're not when you're moving and driving them around. Don't be one of those people driving around with your pop-outs out. I've seen that a couple times. I have not done that, thank God. It's very dangerous. You'll notice right away, trust me, or someone will be honking, yelling at you, hey, dummy, your sliders are out. Um, you don't have to tell them. You know, it's a driving. It's These are big, diesel-powered Engines, I mean, these things are, they're massive. And you get to pretend you're a rock star, which is pretty cool. Cons, expensive, terrible gas mileage. More space means they're big, sometimes really big, because it causes you a high pucker factor, because you can't see where you're going sometimes, a lot of blind spots. But most of them today have cameras, backup cameras, all that good stuff. They're pretty high tech. Usually the most expensive of all RVs to maintain. Usually requires a mechanic who specializes in RVs, Class A RVs. Uh, you may have to get a special class driver's license, depending uh, on the state or where you live. Uh, people may think you're a rock star and ask for your autograph, so be prepared if you get one. Um, class B. Think of this as kind of a, what we used to call a conversion van when I was growing up. If you ever watched the show American Pickers, that van... Uh, storage slash, you know, storage van that they drive around it, it, they look a lot like that, but they're expanded out into an RV, basically. They range anywhere from seventy-five dollars to $125,000, and they're usually about the 20-foot range. They don't get really big. Uh, the pros, convenient. You don't need a tow vehicle. Again, you drive them. Small and easy to store. Decent gas mileage. Easy to maintain. It's usually just like a normal car. And they fit in a normal parking space. Class A, yeah. You ain't fit in a normal parking space. And matter of fact, people are going to have to scatter out of your way if you're going through a shopping center parking lot because it's going to take up the whole road. Uh, fit in a normal, uh, uh, no special driver's license required. Cons, they're smallest of all, all the RVs. Usually doesn't come with a slide, any slide outs. When comparing size to price, they're definitely the most expensive. No rock star bedroom to be had. You are going to be in cramped quarters. Uh, so, any of you former Navy guys like myself, no big deal, right? Um, two people can be considered cramped. You're going to be running into each other a lot. Almost no storage. And most people eventually wish they had more space. Um, class C. Here's what gets a little confusing. You think a Class C would be a Class B and a Class B would be a Class C. Class C is the, the RV that most people are familiar with. These are the ones that you would have taken or rented 
as you know your family would rent as a kid to travel across the country or go on a you know multi-state vacation multi-area so they're they're kind of think of a a truck front end with a big bigger boxy attachment behind it I'm trying to give you a visual on this probably not doing a very good job but just think of them bigger than the the class b but smaller than the class a uh, they range anywhere from t- usually 20 to 30 feet. And they're the similar price. They're about 75 to 125,000, just like a Class B. The pros, bigger than a Class B. Better gas mileage than a Class A. Has some storage, definitely more than the Class B, but not as much as a Class A. No special driver's license required. Again, you don't require a tow vehicle, you drive it. Um, not as expensive to service as a Class A, uh, for sure. Because they usually have a, a normal bigger engine but it's it's a standard engine that most mechanics will be familiar with cons usually not convenient for long-term living does not usually fit in a normal parking spot because they're a little big poor gas mileage and they're very they're the most of the those the drivable ones they're the most unstable they can definitely you know they they're more exposed to wind um they're bigger um so they can be a little they can be a little tricky to drive at most, and usually only one slide-out, if they even have one. Some of the newer ones I've seen with slide-outs. Now, let's go into the most common that most people use, and I've owned three of these, which is a tow-behind travel trailer. So, the difference between a tra- tow-behind travel trailer and a fifth wheel. Tow-behind means you tow it behind your, your vehicle. So, it goes into the receiver hitch with the tow hitch underneath your bumper. Just remember that. So, you tow it behind you. They are, like I said, they're the most common, usually called just a travel trailer. They usually range anywhere from 18 to 30 foot, but there are some specialty ones that can be like 10, 12 feet, you know, those little pods and little teardrop ones that are, you know, kind of retro and cool. They make them really small, but remember those, that's just basically a bed in there. Uh, but the 18 footers have everything, you know, sink, microwave, oven, you know, refrigerator. Once you get smaller than that, they tend to start cutting out those uh, typical living options. They range anywhere from 15 to 90,000. Again, 18 to 30 foot range. And there's also a category called ultralight. Usually called ultralight. You sometimes they'll call it a lightweight. If there's if there's light in the name, it's meaning it's lighter than a standard trailer. And these are are usually in the 18 foot range, right around there. They usually don't have a pop-out, but you can tow them with a V6 vehicle. And I'm not talking get your Honda Accord and tow it. God, I, people do stupid stuff. I'm talking a, like a, a Toyota Tacoma, uh, you know, maybe a Chevy Colorado, the smaller trucks, uh, SUVs. I don't recommend it. Uh, long-term uh, towing, it's not a good idea. You're going to wear your vehicle out, flat out. I did it with my Tacoma, and uh, it, I only towed it from very small distances. I stepped up to a bigger truck when I was ready to actually tow it longer distances. Um, the the uh, the best, you know, they're 15 to 90 grand. I don't know if I said that. Got on a tangent there. But pros, a huge variety to choose from. Come in lighter weight versions that can be towed V6, which I just described. Have most of the amenities of a Class A at a fraction of the cost. Can be t- detached and left, left, thus freeing you to drive your daily vehicle. You know, it, 
when you have the Class A through C, you're driving it. So that could be your vehicle. Don't get me wrong. Class A is big enough and Class B's. You can tow a vehicle behind it. Actually, you can tow it behind a Class B, but I've, I don't see that hardly as much as the other two. So if you're going to go places, live, and you want a vehicle, you got to tow it behind you, which is going to make your gas mileage worse and give you even more of a pucker factor of running into something. Um, low operating costs, no engine, so repairs are pretty basic. Uh, and you're not stuck. You can drive away in your vehicle. No special driver's license required. Cons, you have to tow them so they can be tricky to maneuver. If you never towed anything, yeah, you can, you know, it takes a little getting used to. The bigger they are, the larger vehicle you will need to safely tow it. Pretty common. I recommend a bare minimum of a half-ton pickup but or a big SUV. But honestly, you need probably a three-quarter ton. If you're going to invest in a vehicle, buy a three-quarter ton truck, preferably a diesel. I get into more all the details of that in the book. So be ready for that when it comes out. Uh, it takes time to get you used to, especially if you've never towed anything before, like I said. More time setting up, breaking down when you move them. So a little different than your class A, B, and C. You got to do a little more setup. Not self-contained, so you need a separate generator. Some of the nicer ones come with a generator pre-installed that you, you pay for. I bring around a mobile uh, generator, and I get into all the generator stuff in the book. And we don't have enough time for that. Fifth wheels. Fifth wheel actually... It sits inside the bed of your truck is where the receiver is and the it, it gets, oh gosh, that gooseneck. I won't get into all the pieces. Just think of it, it's the big receiver that you see in trucks and actually the, you'll see that the front of the trailer is actually over the bed of the truck. That's the biggest difference. So with that, fifth wheels are easier to tow. Because they, they, the weight is on the rear axle instead of behind the truck. So they're more stable, and they can be much, much larger. Some of these are behemoths. They, they range usually in the 30 to 40-foot foot range. And usually your travel trailer will cut off right around your 30-foot range. So once you go beyond a 30-foot travel trailer tow behind, you end up in the fifth wheel world. They make smaller fifth wheels than 30-foot. But usually that's where people go if they need more space. Usually 50 to 100 grand. Uh, you can spend more than that, but you'll get a really, really nice one in that range. And you can actually pick them up used for far less than 50 grand. I've seen people pick them up for 15, 20 grand, really nice ones. Um, now, the pros, again, not motorized, so you can attach. You've got your daily use vehicle. Much more space usually than a standard travel trailer. Amenities are closer to a standard house like an RV, uh, like the Class A. Built more for families or larger groups of people. No, no engine again, so if you're stranded, you know, you just drive off. No special driver's license required, which is changing because some of these are getting to be so big and heavy. I believe some states, if they haven't implemented it, are talking about implementing a special license for certain uh, fifth wheels. But it has to be in a certain weight class. It won't be for all of them, from what I understand. Uh, cons, usually much larger than a travel trailer, so harder to park and store. More expensive to maintain than a travel trailer. Require a larger vehicle to tow. I would recommend a truck only, normal truck. No, not, not a 1978 Toyota uh, 
for, for Boehner, uh, cannot be towed, our special receiver required so additional cost. Receiver is in the back of the bed of the truck, so your, be- your bed's going to be restricted even when you're not towing it because those are bolted in. They do make uh, detachable ones, but they are ridiculously expensive. They're like, I think, two to 2500 bucks, and you got to lift those things out. They're not light. They're, they can be heavy. Uh, unless you got a, there's some special gooseneck. It, it gets real technical. I only want to get into it. Um, usually costs more than a travel trailer. That's why travel trailers are for for people. I recommend that's where you should start because what will happen to is you will jump up and move around. Not only with with your travel trailer RV, you will change your tow vehicle if you're getting travel trailers. You'll move around. Your first time you go at it, you you don't get it exactly how you want it because you don't know exactly where you're going or what you're doing. So you kind of grow into the lifestyle and figure out what is the best fit for you. So I hope that that helps you out a little bit. I know it can be complicated. Uh, When it comes to travel trailers and, and RVs, there's a bazillion different choices. I kid you not. It is confusing. Um, what I, I just recommend, take your time, you know, and find find the right one for you. Don't let the dealer talk you into it. But I go I go into so much detail in this book and I outline everything on how to find one, what the best size is, you know, all the amenities, you know, little tricks and tips to save you time and and uh, so yeah. If you have any questions put it in the comments section. And you can also email me at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot. Next up, I have a uh, question for uh, Chef Keith Snow. Actually, a lot of people have been asking questions about this since I had Chef Keith on uh, his last interview, and he talked about food storage feasts. And one of the things he talked about is a protein source in your pantry long term is something called salted cod. And there's been a lot of questions on that. So, Keith... Talk to us about salted cod and why we should even care. Hey, Chef Kiso with Harvest Eating and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to talk a little bit about salt cod. I get a lot of questions about salt cod, how to use it, should I store it, what's the deal with it. So I'm going to wax on a bit about salt cod. Now, those of you that are listening to my voice now in the TSP audience, uh, a lot of you get overly excited about, get your panties in a bunch, as they say, about things like aquaponics. I know a dude out in Iowa, he's, he's an aquaponics guy. Um, guns and ammo, solar panels, permaculture, and, you know, you go on those TSP forums and you're going on and on and on about that kind of stuff, and that is terrific. Now, um, that certainly excites me, but you start talking about salt cod and what can be done with it. And uh, that's when I get excited now. Unfortunately, there's really no salt cod forum or, or thread on, uh, or not a big one anyway, on TSP for me to uh, get too excited about. So I will talk about it here because I do get a lot of questions about it. And uh, this one dude emailed me, and he was wondering about, you know, first of all, should he add it to his preps? Is it something good to store? Now, that is a, the type of question that is very hard to answer because of, you know, your situation, your personal taste, your cooking skills, There's a lot of things about it. Now, I have some salt cod in my preps. I think it's very worthy to have because, number one, it doesn't need any, you just throw it in a uh, sort of a conditioned space and it's going to do just fine. Um, now, one thing out there in the prepping world is meat. Now, if you're doing canned meat and 
you know, chicken, beef and all that. You can, you can even can butter for that matter. That's fine because you can get some good shelf life out of it. Um, but when it's, when you're talking about fresh meats, pork, you know, beef, that can be problematic for the long term because without power, for instance, uh, refrigeration and freezing are things that tend to be quite difficult. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. A few days, sure, but you don't want to be running generators and burning gasoline and all that trying to keep, you know, 20 pounds of meat cold. So that's where, you know, this type of thing like salt cod all, all of a sudden becomes a little more exciting because it doesn't need any of that. It's a good protein source that can be brought back to life, so to speak, desalinization it's called, and it can be cooked in a lot of different ways, and it doesn't require the typical energy consumption that can be tricky. Now, I remember at one point I had um, a lot of beef stored. It was frozen, and uh, we had a circuit pop in the garage, and the rest of the house was fine, so it wasn't a power outage. It was just a little circuit failure. No reason for it. There was nothing else on that circuit, but we lost a lot, you know, a big investment of meat rotted. So that was one thing. Then um, because of that, I learned, or I thought I did, and I said, I'm going to have solar panels and a bunch of batteries to back up my um, my freezer and my refrigerator. <clears throat> so I went out and got that stuff and had it working. And had it, you know, in the sun all the time. And I lived in a place where there was a lot of trees in North Carolina. And power outages, I mean, whenever the wind blew, the power would go out. And, you know, those lines that are running down the sides of those streets where there's tons of trees and you get wind and all that and rain and ice. I mean, you're just begging for a power outage. And for me, you know, as far as prepping for long term, the grid is what scares me. I don't think aliens are coming, you know, EMP, you know, that doesn't really get me too worried. But, you know, a long term power outage, a grid down thing, that's where it can get uh, ugly pretty quickly. So being Mr. Smart, I had these solar panels and all these batteries charged up. And how long do you think it lasted when the power went out? We, We lost power for about, I don't know. Little over a day, that was it. Like 26 hours. Man, after 12 hours, that refrigerator, those batteries were dead. I mean, complete four big, giant, you know, heavy duty solar batteries that were 100% charged. They were toast in no time. And there was nothing else. It was just one refrigerator freezer plugged into it. So, Again, my point is it's difficult to store fresh frozen meats and protein of any kind. So this is where this stuff gets exciting. Now, let's talk specifically about this salt cod. This is something that it's big in Europe, you know, um, France, Spain, Portugal, and then further north, you know, into um, the UK, Ireland, anywhere where there's a, there's a coastline, you can catch this stuff. It's popular. Croatia. Um, they they eat it up in Iceland and the Nordic countries have uses for it. And then you'll find it in, you know, in Canada. Um, and then it's pretty big in the Caribbean, too. So what's great about it is it lends itself. And this is where it really excites me. It lends itself to many different cuisines. So, yeah, I mean, if you've got frozen ground meat, you know, that's uh, or dried Dried jerky, I mean, you know, how many ways are you are going to eat that? So this dried fish can take on a lot of different cuisines. Now, one of the um, cuisines that's exciting for me 
is uh, Thai food. I love Thai food. And in my course food storage feast, I am currently working on a recipe that I have that uses salt cod and I'm making it good to use with stored food, canned food and things like that. So look for a Thai codfish salad coming with a coconut cilantro broth, which is just out of this world. Those of you that are students of the Food Storage Feast course, just check your update section because that should appear within the next two weeks or so. Um, but you're not going to find a lot of dried fish generally used in Southeast Asia because they've just got too many fresh fish. So this was something that was done because there wasn't any refrigeration and it, and method that they did it and still do it. Of course, now it's done in, you know, enclosed factories for, for the most part, but it's just codfish that's caught, prepped, salted, um, laid on boards in the sun in most cases. And you don't need to put it in the sun, but that's generally how it was done back then. And the stuff can last a long time. Now, let's just quickly talk about desalinization. You have to get the salt out of it. It is salty through and through when you get it. Usually you'll buy it and you can order it right off of Amazon. Look for the Canadian variety or any, any place that sells it in a little wooden box it tends to be a little higher quality. You want to try to buy it in fillets. Don't be tempted by the cheap stuff you'll see in a clear plastic bag that shreds because that might not even be cod, and you just want to, this isn't a place where you want to skimp. You want to get the good stuff. So um, once you get it, you're going to need to get the um, salt off of it. So take it out of the box or, or however you get it and rinse it carefully with your hands under cold water, just giving it a little massage. Try to get all the surface salt off of it. Then you're going to want to soak it for at least 24 hours, maybe even longer, maybe even 36 hours. Every 12 hours, you want to change the water. So have it in a container that's got a lid that's not going to leak all over your fridge, and you take it out after 12 hours, dump the water, clean the vessel real quick, rinse the fish off, put it back in, fill it up, put it back in the fridge another 12 hours. Now, um, this is a place where I would definitely recommend, for those of you that um, have a Berkey or you know well water, you're good to go, but you don't want to put stinky, chlorinated city water in your fish because you've got osmosis taking place, and you just don't want to do that. So um, go and check out the Berkey guy at Directive 21 and get yourself a, a Berkey filter and use filtered water for your water changes. So let's assume you've done that properly. One quick bit of advice whenever you're cooking with saltfish is, and I called it that for a reason, it's salty. So don't be salting recipes like you normally would and then add saltfish because a lot of the salt in your recipe is coming from the fish. Even though you've soaked it and done all these things, you're never going to get it all out. And if you salt the different layers of your food and then add saltfish to it, you're going to have a salt bomb. So be very careful about the seasoning of your of your, of your your dish. So... <clears throat> um, how do you cook it? Well, in France, they do something called brandade or brandade. They pronounce it differently. And it's basically um, potatoes that are um, poached with a bunch of garlic. And, man, I'm already excited. And then they, they poach the fish in either milk or cream uh, or a combination of water, milk, and cream with things like bay leaves, peppercorns, some fresh thyme, just slightly poached until you can break it apart. And then it's um, put in a bowl, and the, the, the softened potatoes are put put in there with some of the poaching liquid, and it's mashed together. Um, and, you know, how fine you mash the cod is up to you. I like to see pieces of cod. Like if you look at my salt cod potato cakes in that uh, food storage feast course, I mean, you're going to get a half-inch chunk of fish, which is nice. So 
you know, some people put it in the food processor and make a paste out of it. Eh, I don't know about that. So once it's all mashed up, it's mixed again with some cream, and everything is cooked at this point, so you need to taste it. If it does need some salt, you can add it. And then it's put into a casserole dish, and now some some people in France will put some shredded cheese on top of it. Um, you don't want to be putting like a Mexican craft cheese on it, if that's the clue for you, you know, some something... Something extra fine like a, a Gruyere, which is actually a Swiss cheese. But some recipes you'll see the cheese. I don't think you really need to put cheese in here, but you bake this thing at 400 for about 30 minutes and serve it with crusty toast. And it is, you know, it's a killer appetizer. Really good. Uh, what other ways do they cook with it? Well, uh, that's, that's a great way. And then you go down to the Caribbean. You'll see this, and it's interesting because um, I've got family on Cape Cod, and you know there's a place called Fall River, and New Bedford, which is these are fishing areas very close to Cape Cod, just over the bridge essentially, and uh, they're populated with a lot of Portuguese people. So you'll see bacala down there, and all these fish cakes and salt cod fritters, and so they they brought that cuisine with them. But over um, in places like Portugal, they'll do quite a bit of cod cakes and, and, and sometimes they won't even use codfish, but they'll use, um, conch, you know, down in Key West. And, and that's, this is all inf- influences. There's, you know, the Spanish, there's the Portuguese. You'll even see some Chinese influence and Indian influence down in the Caribbean in different areas. And that's a very regional place, but down in the Caribbean, they call it Amon. Let's go and get some salt fish, man, and we'll fry it up. That's my best Jamaican accent, by the way. But they do the salt fish down there. And um, they'll do the whole, and again, the methods for desalinating, some people put it in hot water and simmer it to get the, the salt out of it. I recommend the soaking myself. But basically what they do down there is, that, you know, they take their typical components, uh, onions, a little bit of oil, a lot of thyme, and then a selection of, bell peppers, maybe a trio of bell peppers, green onions, very widely used down there. A lot of fresh thyme, like I said, scotch bonnet pepper. All that will go together in a saute, and they call it like sautéed salt fish, and they'll serve it, you know, with rice or other fritters and, um, you know, mashed bananas. So it's really exciting, and then you'll see it a lot in uh, in fritters. Well, they'll make a batter. And this isn't like, it's not like a fried dough at the local fair in the summertime. This is, you know, a lot of fish, a lot of onions, and those typical flavors like I just mentioned. Then they'll mix a very light batter um, into it, and then they'll deep fry it. So you're getting mostly fish and, and some vegetables. It's not like a dough ball with a hint of fish in it, but very popular down there. So that's another way to, to cook with it. And Depending upon where you go, it's it, it could be anything like that. So all in all, it's exciting how you can cook with this uh, with this fish. And I got to tell you, you know, rubbing my own shoulders here, but the the way I do it, the, the Thai inspired salt cod with this coconut cilantro broth on it, and it's got onions and chili peppers in it. It is it's crazy good. If I had some, I'm recording this at 8:30 in the morning. If I had some of that right now, I'd be eating it. But, uh, again, if you're a student of the course, do check it out. You'll see it show up there. And those of you that want to learn more about your course, the the course is called Food Storage Feast, and you can find it at foodstoragefeast.com. 
And uh, I appreciate everybody supporting uh, my efforts and my endeavors and also what Jack is doing here at uh, the Survival Podcast. I hope everybody has a terrific weekend. And with all this flu going around, I would highly advise washing your hands as much as you can because, uh, yeah, a lot of people are, are sick. Um, and I've looked at some of the, the CDC reports and, um, sometimes some winters you'll see widespread and they'll have, you know, 15 or 20 states. This year, as many of you know, I mean, the widespread is, is all 50 states. So be washing your hands and, uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend and maybe it will include some salt cod. Next up, got a question for cryptocurrency expert Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch. Uh, discussing called a cryptocurrency faucet. Is that a scam or not? Sounded like one to me. Never heard of it before. You'll hear there actually is a legitimate component to cryptocurrency faucets, um, but they may not be worth your time or messing with, and there certainly could be nefarious uses of them as well. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack. This is Ben the cryptocurrency expert with the Survival Podcast Expert Council. And today we have a question that comes from Dan in South Central Pennsylvania. And Dan asks, he wants to know uh, my thoughts on cryptocurrency faucets. Are they worth the time or just a scam? Thanks for the question, Dan. Let me ask or let me explain first what a cryptocurrency faucet is because many of you may not have ever heard of it before. A cryptocurrency faucet is basically a website you go to where you enter in your wallet address and you get some cryptocurrency back. And yes, most of them are legit, um, at least in terms of getting cryptocurrency out of them, <laughs> you know, um, you don't want to deposit your cryptocurrency in them. Some of them, you know, are open for donations and stuff like that. And I, I certainly wouldn't trust that. You know, the person running the faucet can just run off with the money instead of paying it out. Um, I, faucets can be legit and they can be non-legit. So let's talk about that real quick. So all, all they're asking for you is they're asking your wallet address. And then they send you a tiny bit of cryptocurrency. Typically, they send you thousands of a cryptocurrency. So, you know, you're looking at three or four decimal places deep, you know, 0001 or something like that or, or 001 um, or some tiny little fraction of currency. And it's never just going to be one. It's always going to be some random number, but it's going to be a small amount. Typically, a faucet is used for a new currency to help gain exposure. So... A lot of users can ask for money. Now, there are some cryptocurrencies. Um, what's the one that can be mined for? Um, I, I have seen some currencies that require you to have some small amount to even, like, you know, get started with it. And even, like, mining and, and things like that. So they use faucets to help set up those users' accounts. There's also some, I've seen some, um, that it's just a way to gain more exposure um, for another business that promotes themselves on the faucet. You know, maybe someone runs a big mining pool or something like that. They take a little bit of their earnings and they set up a faucet. 
Um, so those are probably mostly legitimate things. You can get a small amount of cryptocurrency. It's a small amount, though, and it's supposed to be a small amount to one part of your question, Dan, was is it worth your time? It's such a small amount that it probably isn't worth your time. You know, the way faucets are set up is you put in your address and you can get like one deposit a day typically or one deposit every so many hours. That's to prevent one person from going in and draining the entire funds from the faucet. So you would religiously have to go back and set a schedule to go back every day or, you know, whatever the time period is. You would need to go back every day in order to extract enough money to make it be worth anything really unless the coin becomes big now if you've got one one thousandth of a bitcoin today well bitcoin's at you know eleven thousand twelve thousand dollars today what's it at eleven and a half and um yeah eleven thousand three hundred fifty one this morning so a thousandth of a bitcoin point zero zero one bitcoin would be worth thirteen dollars and if you did that enough times, you know, certainly, um, that's just an example, but, but that's Bitcoin. You know, most of the coins you're going to be getting those funds for are going to be penny coins. They're going to be dollar coins. They're going to be tens of dollar coins. They're not going to be hundreds or thousands of dollar coins. And so, you know, the amount of currency that you extract from them is going to be fairly small it's probably not going to be worth your time if you got paid an hourly wage it's probably not going to be worth your time to go through the hassle of doing it every day to build up a lot and the faucet will run out of funds eventually um you know they they just set them up like i said usually to get exposure for the coin when a coin is just starting out um I believe that faucets can be illegitimate for several reasons. You know, I, I've seen places where they accept donations from other users, and that's always sketchy to me. I also believe that a faucet, a programmer could set up a faucet to be a money laundering vehicle. So someone who has hacked funds could set up a faucet to do a bunch of small payouts Again, they would have to be a programmer to do it because what they'd have to do is they'd have to generate a whole lot of addresses. But what happens is you put dirty money in the faucet. The faucet sends a lot of very small payouts to addresses and it's all mixed up. It's, you know, legitimate users are also coming in and things like that. And so it's difficult for people to track what's dirty money coming out you know so in essence the money coming out is washed it's clean money and um if a programmer could generate enough addresses and do it properly i think that they could both run the faucet and pay themselves um through money laundering so that's just my opinion on a faucet i'm enough of a programmer that i could see how it could potentially be done uh i can't necessarily do it myself and I'm sure the people that are smart enough to hack some of these sites can figure that out. Of course, I'm sure there are also much better ways of money laundering than running a faucet. But that's just maybe I watch too many TV shows. I could see how that could be done with a faucet. So our cryptocurrency 
faucets legitimate? Most of the time, yes. Are they worth your time? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, you know, I've certainly used them a few times to get some small amounts of cryptocurrency. Um, but it's not something I do very often. I would never consider running a faucet or any of that type of thing. Thanks, Dan, for your question. Thank you, Jack, and Survival Podcast members. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the Expert Council. This has been with Crypto Gulch. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Bye. Good stuff from Ben. And, um, yeah, it's so, like I said, something I'd never heard of before. Uh, I'll tell you real quick before I handle my uh, question today. There also is another type of thing out there. It's a, a straight-up Ponzi-type thing. They They always work initially. They always uh, they don't fail. They they take enough money and they haul ass. And it'll be basically like you put in you know a tenth of a bitcoin or something like that, and we pay you an interest rate daily. There are flat out scripts you can buy to do this. It's a well known scam. If you see anything resembling that, don't do it. Don't get involved. All right. Uh, that I guess that's and I, when I heard Fawcett, I thought that's what they were talking about. And I was like, no, no, no. So it's interesting to find out that there's a, a, a different type of thing. And you can understand why somebody would use a faucet. Let's say I'm a new crypto company. Uh, I want to get people, you know, downloading my wallet, using my currency, holding my currency, knowing about my currency. So I block aside, let's say, you know, I don't know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, quarter million coins that cost me nothing to initially create. As part of my marketing budget, well, my currency is not really that highly valuable, and I drip it out over time just to spread awareness. That seems like a legitimate thing. And like I said, one of the things you need to do when you're a new crypto is if you build a badass wallet with badass applications and things like that, you need people to try it. Well, one way to get them to try it is to say, hey, you can have a little bit of it, and to get it, you'll need our wallet. So I, I get it, but use caution with anything that sounds too good to be true. Uh, I guess getting a, a hundredth of a coin that's worth 25 cents is really not too good to be true, though. I mean, most of these are probably coins that are not yet even on exchanges. Uh, and, and that means that they, you know, maybe gone through an ICO, they're trying to get on exchange, they're trying to get notoriety. So that type of thing. All right. So here's kind of an odd duck question. I don't think I've ever had anything approaching this question before. I've had the exact uh, opposite. How do I find a mentor? This comes from uh, Zach. Zach says, um, hey, Jack, I was just wondering under what circumstances you would turn down a mentor or a leader. Background. I was approached by someone who took an interest in my personality and mindset. We met up, but I felt as if we did not match up, and in complete honesty, something was telling me not to trust him. He invited me to dinner with wealthy people that night and was kind of waving his success in my face. I have felt uneasy in cutting that tie, but should I? What is your take on cutting ties when listening to just instinct but no real tells? Thanks, Zach from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I find that a very odd behavior in somebody that would be a mentor. Um, I have been approached often about mentoring people, and I generally say no. To take somebody in as a mentor, they have to actually fit into your day-to-day -day lifestyle or the time that you have allocated for it. It can't be an on-demand thing. It's actually a really great thing to give back and be a mentor to somebody, but it is a commitment, and it is something that generally people don't go out and seek. Now, maybe this guy had some kind of come-to-Jesus moment in his life and thought, I need to start giving back, and I need to be a mentor. Maybe he never found a mentor in his life, and maybe he's just bad at it. 
right? There might not be anything nefarious here. And maybe he's not even bad at being a mentor. Maybe he's just not good at it because he doesn't have experience with how you actually begin this process. So that it may not be nefarious at all. And then that odd behavior alone might be what like turns you off to it. Uh, an example from history would be John Adams. John Adams was amazing as an orator. He was as amazing as a legislator helping get the colonies on board with declaring independence. When he was sent to France as a diplomat to try to engage with the French and getting support for us in the Revolutionary War, he was horrible at it. He got better, but he was never a great diplomat. He just wasn't good at it. Good man, lots of integrity, really wanted to do the right thing, was actually a loyalist that turned revolutionary because of principle, certainly wasn't being nefarious with, with the French government, but just wasn't good at it. So it could be that, or it could be something like, you know, some I don't know, maybe the guy's one of these people that does network marketing and does it as a scam. Not all network marketing is scams. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but it's it's odd. Like, I would never approach somebody that I met, I don't know, you know, and it'd be interesting to know how you met this gentleman and be like, hey, I want to be your mentor. Let me introduce you to my successful friends and wave my success in your face. But again, Maybe he just sucks at it. I don't know. But I'll tell you what I'm big on, Zach. Trusting your gut. When you're approached by somebody and the the mere act of approach is somewhat repellent, I believe that we have more than the five senses they teach us about in school. I don't believe we have a sixth sense. I believe we probably have about ten of them. And I think that the reason we can't name them and we just call it all the sixth sense, is because we don't really have enough understanding of how they work to trust them or to define them or to name them. But I'll tell you what I mean by this in a totally unrelated way. If you've ever archery hunted, there'll be a point where you're sitting up in a tree stand or something like that with your bow. You're in the deep woods. Everything's completely quiet. Maybe it's rained a little bit or there's some snow on the ground. So you can't hear a sound being made. It is totally quiet. It is, it is so quiet, it could be like deathly quiet. You don't see anything, you don't smell anything, you don't hear anything, and all of a sudden, the hair on your arm, and if you've never experienced this, it's hard to explain, but the hair on your arm will stand up as though static electricity was going on or something. The hair on the back of your neck will stand up. A heightened awareness will come over you, and you know there's a deer. You don't see it yet, you don't smell it yet, you don't see it yet. There's no way for you to know that animal's there. But because you're in a, a state of mind, in a state that is very, very primitive, right? We're not, we're not glassing with high-power binoculars 100 yards away at a feeder. We're in the forest with the animals, behaving as a predator that's in our nature. This sense turns on. And every bow hunter that I've ever talked to has experienced it. Okay, There's no, like, A plus B equals C explanation for that. It is something internal and in us that is sensitive to that condition. And I believe it is not infallible. It can be triggered accidentally, and I believe that since we're further from the primitive man that was more in touch with it, that we can be wrong. So just because you get an uneasy feeling about someone does not mean you're right, but I'll tell you what, I have seldom been wrong. When I've met somebody and I've thought, I don't like this person, uh, they almost never win me over, 
And I don't mean like, I don't like the way this person spoke or, you know, my initial impression. I'm talking about when I get a feeling like, no, don't trust this son of a bitch. Every single time I've been dead on. And that's gone from moving into a new neighborhood, feeling very happy about it, walking over to the neighbor's house, knocking on the door and saying hello and immediately going, we're, we're going to have problems with this person. And some people would say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but when you don't involve yourself with their lives at all and they make themselves a problem, it's a prophecy, but it's not self-fulfilling now, is it? And so I generally very much trust this, uh-uh, no. Then if it's corroborated with behavior that's odd, like, look how successful I am, you could be like me. Who the hell does this? So again, in trying to be fair, maybe he, this is the first time he's decided. You know, again, people get in their lives, especially if this guy's like my age and is like mid forties. You get that midlife crisis, like, what am I doing with my life? I've got to do something. I've got to, and, and, and they decide that they want to do something that they've never done before. And instead of going out and buying a, a red Porsche or something, they, they decide to become a mentor. And maybe he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And maybe that gave you the bad feeling. But this is where I'm, I'm done. If I get that feeling more than once, when I meet that person a second time, if I immediately get that feeling like this, there's something not right here, I'm done. I'm done. It's not that I wouldn't help that person if their house is on fire or something like that, but I'm not progressing in the relationship with them. Let me explain something that's very important. It's related to this, but not completely. And it has to do with who you associate with. You are not just yourself. You are yourself plus the people you associate with. And this is why I have a fairly large associates list where people I'll talk to and have things to do with and what have you, but they're not friends. The people that you not just have as associates, but associate yourself with, that you spend time with, that you do things with, that you have discussions with, they either add to or take away from all the good that you are. So before you let someone into that group, Before you consider someone, someone that I will sit down with and spend hours with discussing life as you would with a good mentor, they need to pass the test of, are they a person that I want to be like? Do I see things in that person and say, I would like to add this to myself. And if they don't have any of that, then you probably don't need to involve yourself, even as their mentor. See, even when I've taken on people, and see, you don't have to be better than me to be my friend. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is I'll, I'll see a person and think to myself, even though this person's like fighting their ass off to come up and they haven't gotten and they don't know as much as I do about certain subjects and all that, yeah, this person can become part of my life. And there'll be a mentorship in that, but I'll see something in them like integrity. And think even if, I don't, I don't necessarily have to have more integrity, but integrity. Well, if that person has integrity and I have integrity and we get together, it builds the integrity for both of us. That's what I'm trying to say. And generally speaking, what I've found is, even without being able to say what it is, if you examine it because you've had multiple interactions, when you have a person who you just don't feel right about, you will find certain key principles, integrity, honesty, loyalty, trust, Grit, determination, drive, whatever it is that are positive things. And when you actually get to know the person, you'll find that those things were lacking and that triggered that primal alarm that said no. So, again, since I don't know the full context here, I don't want to shit all over this guy. 
Okay, so I'm going to say one more time. He could be a guy that came to this realization and just doesn't know how to initiate that type of a relationship. He could be fumbling through it and there may be nothing wrong with it. But trust your instincts, Zach. Because, it, again, I've never had a formalized relationship of apprenticeship, I guess with except one person to a degree, and that would have been Josiah, who was an intern here on my property for seven months. But the key in accepting that was already like trusting the man and and being willing to have him as a you know person I had a friendship with that went beyond that to the point where he lived in our home and, and we, we spent a lot of time together. Um, but in the end... I've mentored a lot of people, and a lot of people have mentored me. And in general, a mentorship is a two-way street. This concept of, you know, I'll be your mentor, and you pay me $1,000 a month to tell you what to do in business, I, I'm not about that. If I'm going to hang out with a person, and they're going to gain from my knowledge, then I want there to be a genuine friendship and relationship there. And I don't need anything back for it. But I'm going to get something back for it because it's a person that I would want to hang out with regardless of their desire to become a better business person or a better man. And I think anything outside of that is contrived, and it probably won't work very well. It's just my opinion. But again, I'm telling you, as a hunter that's had this experience of this perception that there is no solid scientific explanation for but every single person that's hunted in primitive types knows this knows the sensation you can't tell the person it's not real because they've experienced it that that perception has many manifestations and one is this is a person not to trust now be careful one final thought on this before i close up today you can have the, the you can be wrong not just that okay this i feel bad about this person but they're okay You can also have the feeling this person is safe, and they're not. So be careful with that, too. Don't just think because, because you can be warned that you'll always be warned. There's a, be blunt, there's a lot of good con men out there in the world. You know, it's when, you, when you go to buy a car and you know the guy's a shyster and your wife turns to you, he's so nice. Well, of course he is. He's trying to sell us a car, right? So don't think that the fact that you might get the alarm means you'll always get the alarm. I do believe the more in touch you become with this, the more you are likely to get the alarm. Trust your gut, and at least if you have any feeling like this, if you're going to proceed at all, proceed with caution. In the words of the Russian proverb, trust but verify. With that, let's wrap up things today. I do not have an item of the day for you today, but I do, uh, I do have a recommendation that if you want to support the show, go to tspaz.com before you shop online. That's an easy thing to do. Uh, our song of the day today is uh, a, a song from wrapping up our week of Simon and Garfunkel. And it's a song that, like, if you had asked me to put together a playlist of Simon and Garfunkel, it's probably one of the last songs I would have picked if it would have been five or six years ago. Um, I actually went through, like, a, uh, I don't know, a phase of listening to Simon and Garfunkel about five or six years ago. Built a uh, Pandora channel around them and things like that. And... One day this song came on, and it's very short. It's like a minute and a half or something like that. And instead of skipping it, because I was always like, and, you know, on Pandora, you skip a song, and like another version of it comes back. And you have to skip that. Well, not skip, but thumbs down it so it goes away, right? And I, I listened to it, and I, I realized the point. Like, life gets so freaking hectic. Life gets so complicated. And this song was written when Simon and Garfunkel had actually become very successful, and their life was getting really hectic. 
This is about coming over the 59th Street Bridge in New York. And some of the beautiful, simple things, the cobblestone and stuff like that's there. And just every once in a while saying, screw it. Just enjoy life. The hell with it. Enough of the seriousness. Enough of the, of the, of the hype. Enough of the, the effort. Enough. Just freaking chill. And when you listen to it that way, it becomes a great song for a Friday. And I told you about my week this week. Being bitten by fire ants. I'll tell you another thing that happened to me. I have a cut in my finger. It's a very shallow cut, but a painful one. I have a karambit knife that I carry in my pocket. I found out that you can cut yourself with a folding knife folded up in your pocket. If it opens up just a little bit and the tip protrudes through, I went to wipe my hands on my jeans right after I got attacked by the ants and got cleaned up and sliced my finger a bit. Like, I've had a week like that. Like Everything I've done hasn't failed, but it's been hard. It's been complicated. It's been interrupted. I've got the construction going on out here, which is a great thing in of itself, but I've had to pause the recording about 50 times today just to get through this when 90% of the time I wasn't talking. They're banging on the roof. The dogs are scared. The kids cry. And you know what? It's Friday. Screw it. I got work to do. I got to get some more stuff ready for Liberty Forum. But in the end, there's going to be a point today where I say screw it. I'm going to walk around this amazing property that I've been working on for five years and just enjoy the fact of the things that have worked well are working. And just be happy to have the sun on my face, the wind on my face, and realize everything Overall, is okay. That's what this song's about. I hope that's how you make your Friday in this coming weekend. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just Kicking down the cobblestones Looking for fun and feeling groovy Feeling groovy Hello lamppost, what you knowin' I come to watch your flowers growin' Ain't you got no rhymes for me Do it and do do feeling groovy Feeling groovy. I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep at the morning time. Drop all its petals on me. Life, I love you. All is groovy.